Blog Talk Radio. author of the book Live from the Cafe and A Moment in the Sun. A mysterious young woman's disappearance, a seemingly unconnected woman's nightmares and flashbacks, and a mysterious Bible are part of the mystery of the sins of Rachel Sims. Dr. Dennis Clausen is a professor of American literature and screenwriting at the University of San Diego, a place he has held for over four decades. He is the author of several works, including Brown, Posey's Parents, Sunbury Press books. Uh, Dennis Clausen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's begin with this intriguing mystery. Um, the title character, Rachel Sims, immediately appears at sort of the first chapter or maybe the prologue of, of this story. Um, and you immediately take us to what seems a very rough, desolate place. Um, if you could give us a bit of an overview of Rachel and where we are. Well, uh, basically, uh, in some respects, you know, I'm a college professor at the University of San Diego, and uh, I have read and taught the Scarlet Letter for a long time. So uh, in some ways, Rachel Sims is based on the Hester Prynne from that story. But she's also based on uh, a character in our family history that I can tell you a little bit more about later. The actual setting for this is uh, over by the uh, eastern side of Minnesota, uh, near the Mississippi River and some of the rivers that flow into it. And uh, I lived there for a very short time when I was a boy, but I was always kind of amazed how everything was kind of made out of granite. There's granite boulders all over the place. And uh, so that's the actual setting of the story. Um, I can tell you more, if you'd like, about the the family history, um, and that kind of led me in part to to write this story. Well, by all means, you were telling me a little bit about it before we went on, and that is fascinating. Okay, well, here it is. I'll try to compress it. My father was adopted uh, out of an orphanage in in the 1920s. He was uh, brought to a farm in west central Minnesota. It didn't turn out to be a good um, adoption, and he eventually was able to locate his uh, birth mother. He followed a trail of clues to her, and she told him who his father was. Now, he told me some of those things, and he shared some of that with me. Um, Later, let's fast forward quite a few years to 1978, I was back in Minnesota with my wife, and we'd kind of run out of people to visit and things to do, and uh, I just kind of said, you know, let's go down to Dawson, Minnesota, where I knew at the time from my dad, that's where his biological grandmother came from and his father, uh, and just kind of ask people what they, they knew about him. And so uh, we decided to do that. Now, I knew that his uh, mother was, his, was deceased. She had passed away in 1959. 
and his father had died in a construction accident in 1948. So we just drove over to Dawson, and we just kind of wandered around the streets, pretty much the way uh, Laura Fielding does in the novel, The Sins of Rachel Sims, and asked people what they knew about my, uh, first of all, my biological uh, grandfather. And as it turns out, a lot of people knew him, in part because he was the... um, the lone police officer in that town. And also they knew him as the wrestler. He had quite a reputation as a wrestler. I guess they used to rent out National Guard armies and people would throw in $50, $75 and they'd have a tournament, all that kind of stuff. Well, then we wandered down the road uh, to the very end of Main Street and there was a newspaper office and we went in there and there was a fellow behind a desk half asleep. Looked like he was the uh, the whole newspaper <laughs> Enterprise, and uh, he kind of looked up at us and kind of woke up and asked what he could do for us. And I said, uh, I didn't tell him who I was. I didn't didn't want to, but I didn't know what the, what, what the story was fully and if there was a scandal out there or whatever. Uh, but I told him, trying to locate anybody who might know about a distant relative of mine, he asked me who it was. And uh, I said, well, his name is Judd Thompson. And uh, he, he looked up and he said, oh, he said, Judd is one of my best friends. And he started to rattle off the things they had done together, uh, and he spoke very highly of uh, my grandfather. And he uh, said he took kind of took him under his wing when he came to the the uh, town and uh, helped him move around and learn what was going on and everything. And uh, somebody who had been on the kind of the fringes of our family history, I didn't know much about him, of course, uh, was coming to life for me. Well. My wife and I enjoyed that so much, we started coming back for the next seven or eight days. And in one case, we were introduced to a local historian. And uh, I told her I was trying to locate my grandmother. Well, she immediately knew the story about my father, about the birth. And uh, she kind of alluded to somewhat of a public scandal or something it was really kind of vague uh it didn't seem like she wanted to get into it too much but she said you know uh your grandmother's brother is still alive Uh, he lives on the edge of town he's a retired farmer and she said i think he'd love to see you and i kind of tried to talk her out of it i was a little bit uncomfortable about that but she said no 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 she said he's a wonderful fellow and he he would definitely want to see you so she went in the kitchen, called him, came out about 30 seconds later, and he said to send you right over. We'll have lunch together. So we drove over, and uh, I got out of the car, and there was this elderly fellow, probably in his early 80s, leaning on a cane right on the front porch of his prefab home. And when I walked up to him uh, to shake his hand, course, the first thing I noticed, he was a retired farmer. His hands were very weathered, very strong, but he grabbed mm-hmm. my hand and both of his hands, and he said, I never wanted them to let you go. I never wanted them to let you go. And I went, what's this all about? And then suddenly it dawned on me, oh my, he thinks I'm my, my father. And um, I told him, I said, no, no, I think you got me wrong. I said, I'm, you know, uh, I'm Clara, that's his, uh, that's my grandmother, Clara's grandson. And he caught himself, and he kind of chuckled at himself, and then he took us inside, and then he told us the whole story. And he said that uh, your your grandmother gave birth to a child, your father, uh, out of wedlock, and it was uh, in a very uh, kind of uh, rigid church community. 
and so uh, the birth was a home birth. They tried to kept, keep my father hidden for on the farm for some time. And he said that uh, her siblings, meaning him and, her, and the brother, wanted them to keep the child, but an older uh, member of the generation did not want that to be the case. They wanted to get the child out and into an orphanage as such. He also said that, and I don't know exactly what his words were, that my grandmother was kind of uh, disgraced for that and became somewhat publicly humiliated by it. Well, it came, so we went out to her grave and I visited her grave and she kind of came alive for me and everything. And then about mm. a few years later, I got a call from, not a call, I got a letter from this um, local historian and she went into more and she said, that my grandmother had become the symbol in the community for young girls, and their parents would tell them, don't do what Clara did, lest you end up the same way. And she actually had become almost a modern-day Esther Prynne. She didn't have the scarlet letter. She had the invisible scarlet letter, the stigma. Apparently she felt uh, awkward even in going to church, and suddenly I thought, wow, (laughs) What do I have here? You know, I had taught the Scarlet Letter for so many years. I read it many times. I have this in my own family. And uh, I suppose the great irony there is that I was the illegitimate grandson who kind of told her story a little bit. And so that story, without me thinking about it, really, on the conscious level, informs so much of what is going on in the sins of Rachel Sims. And that's kind of the backstory. It is rather a modern day uh, scarlet letter, and um, it's, uh, it, it seems like people were a little more willing to talk about about Clara than uh, than you make it for Laura, whereas you make you you really you, you increase the intensity almost right away with all of that. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, go on, yeah. I, I would say that they were. Uh, a little hesitant at first, but once they realized kind of who I was, they kind of wanted to be helpful, I think. And mm-hmm. um, and they were. They were very helpful. So, But, you know, I was wandering around kind of encountering these small-town characters, and, and that's where I'm really at home, incidentally. I can talk more about that later, but uh, I grew up in a small mm-hmm. town and everything else, so I, I'm very aware of, of who these people are, and I love writing about them. Well, bring us to Laura Fielding. Now, we meet her as uh, the one who is mourning the passing of her mother. And so there's immediately the connection. But tell us about Laura. How, do, how, did, how does she fit? Well, I think in some ways I wanted to challenge myself a little bit here and try to write mm-hmm. from a woman's point of view. Uh, that's a little bit difficult, I think, for men. And uh, I wanted to give that a try. I think she was filled with all of the same kind of uh, needs that I ended up having once I learned just a little bit about my, uh, you know, my, my biological grandmother and grandfather to try to fill in all of the, uh, the details and find out what happened to them, etc. In her case, of course, she finds, Laura's case, she finds that uh, she was living, uh, I won't go too far into the plot, but uh, she was living under uh, kind of false uh, false names and uh, she realized mm-hmm. that she came from somewhere else and uh, you know she became determined to try to find out 
uh, you know, where that was, who these people were. This is something that I encountered uh, after my story I just told you. I met a lot of adopted children, especially the ones who uh, came out of, um, you know, bad bad adoptions. And they developed just an incredible obsessive need to find out who they were and uh, where they fit into this thing we call the human race, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the driving force in her. And then, of course, it gets more complicated as she discovers the some of the secrets, you know, in the small town and uh, kind of the unveiling of the bigger secrets along the way. Mm-hmm. And Laura's very much obsessive, not really – it's not – uh, not blatant, but there is there is that obsessive need, obviously coming off of these uh, flashbacks, these nightmares that she tries to get help with. But there is um, also this strength of I must find this out, and she plunges right ahead. Who's this is a woman who's not a detective, but she becomes one. Yeah, she is an amateur detective in that sense, and I think the motivational force again. I kind of am playing off my own feelings once of that. Once I learned a little bit about this family history, uh, it just took me over. You know, everything else kind of went by the wayside, and I think that's what Laura is. Uh, And she becomes uh, convinced that she is connected uh, to one of the uh, unsolved mysteries of this small town. And, of course, you know, it's it's a dying small town. Uh, I've had a lot of experiences with them. And then the characters mm-hmm. that she meets uh, in this town who are trying to trying to make a life for themselves in spite of the fact that there's so much uh, in the forces of history that are working against them. Um, I have a lot of admiration for those people. And, you know, uh, I love going back to Minnesota and kind of wandering around and talking to those people. But I think that she, uh, you know, has that that driving, driving force to find out what exactly is this one unsolved mystery of this missing person who she then begins to realize she is connected to. Now, the interesting thing about a lot of those characters, um, they have a certain amount of built-in familiarity based on your own experience. And some of the characters, some of the townsfolk, um, there were some semi-stereotypical characters, but not in a bad way. You you did give a lot of depth to you know the the war veteran who's uh, got his own mysterious past and uh, some of the characters of of the church community and just the people like uh, the lady who runs the bed and breakfast you know how difficult is it I mean for you to build characters for a story or any story how do you build how do you make them well uh you know actually when it comes to the small town characters it's not too difficult for me because actually i've known uh their types for the first 20 years of my life um mm-hmm. and uh so uh i kind of just start with uh you know a plot i i write everything as a screenplay first incidentally and uh mm-hmm. then i build a story on top of the screenplay i teach screenwriting a lower division screenwriting course at uh, the university of san diego in addition to american literature and I find that with a screenplay, um, and it's kind of a modified screenplay, when I write the story first, it brings the spirit of the story out and to the surface rather quickly. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, the characters along the way, uh, they kind of come alive before I even start the novel. So by the time I'm done with uh, the screenplay, uh, I know the spirit of the story. 
Uh, I know the structure of the story, although I keep an open mind to that one because I think so much of us, uh, the writers, uh, we have to write instinctively. We have to go with our instincts and you know let the story mm-hmm. kind of find its way as well. Uh, I have a pretty good sense of the ending, and uh, by the time I'm done with the screenplay version, I can tell if the characters are working or are not working for me, then what changes need to be made, get rid of them, build them, give them a better ch- uh, you know, chance. So once I start the actual novel then, and this is kind of my preliminary organization, it's it's kind of a scaffold that will fall off to the side eventually, that is the screenplay. Mm-hmm. But uh, I find that it's I have already have a sense of who they are. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm kind of already inside of them. It, it takes away a lot of the the doubt and the misfirings and all that kind of thing. And uh, so mm-hmm. they, it's a lot easier at that point for me, having gone through the screenplay version, to bring them to life as fully developed characters. Mm-hmm. I understand, now, incidentally. There... That... Yes, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, uh, this is something I started doing quite a long time ago. Uh, and uh, I've learned uh, just, to, I kind of wandered around the Internet a bit, that uh, more writers now are actually using screenplays uh, as rather than conventional outlines they're using screenplays for the same reason that I have I had to be careful with that because you don't want it just to be a checklist of things that you hit along the you know the way but what you want to do is just see it as a temporary scaffold and then let the story take a kind of organic process of its own and that it really works I think pretty well that's interesting because it's like um, I was just thinking Oh God! It's almost thirty years ago when my first stab at writing was a terrible science fiction novel, which basically turned out to be lousy Star Trek fan fiction. <laughs> and I was discussing it with a with a friend of mine who had gone into journalism a few years before me, and uh, I was still a DJ and doing different things. But um, I was telling her the story, and she asked me, "says I have one question for you." And she says, "This book you're writing, could it be made into a movie? Do you feel?" It is one. And I thought for a moment, I said, yes, it could be. And she goes, go from there, use that. And it was a very interesting piece of advice. So for me, it's kind of like, I still write in the book form to begin with, but I visualize. And maybe that's what you're, maybe that is what you're doing with, because of your, your experience in, in screenwriting. Maybe that's it. Well, uh, you know, it does create a, certainly an uh, underlying screenplay structure because it's already there. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I find that it helps me, um, in a couple of ways. It helps me writing dialogue uh, because when mm-hmm. you write for a screenplay, you're writing dialogue for a performance. Mm-hmm. And when you're writing a novel, you're not really thinking in terms of performance. Uh, you know, someone like uh, Mark Twain, for example, he read everything out loud to his wife and kids or his friends, and he wanted to make sure that he got the dialogue down perfectly. I find that, that uh, when I do the screenplay, it helps me with the dialogue for one thing. It also helps me with kind of create more um, stronger visual images um, when you get into the writing of the novel. So, And it gives you just a sense of the knowing where you're going with the story. Not necessarily that you're going to end up the same way, and I, it doesn't always end up the same way, but you've got some kind of a structured way of moving through the story. And, you know, I know there are people who say, well, just start and see where it goes. <laughs> And I've seen a lot of student uh, stories and screenplays that you know don't really work that well when they go that way. Uh, you got to have kind of a kind of a sense of where you're going with it, and 
So there was, I don't know if you remember this, the author, Sue, Sue Grafton, uh, the, uh, the very successful uh, mystery writer mm-hmm. of the Alphabet series. But she worked yes. in Hollywood for a time, and um, she said that an awful lot of what she learned from screenwriting, she was able to use when she started writing novels. And one of the things that mm-hmm. she learned was to try to uh, anticipate her endings fairly early so that you know she could kind of then do all the foreshadowing and false foreshadowing along the way. Um, mm. And of course, it worked out very well for her. Now she doesn't like she didn't have very good things to say about Hollywood, but she certainly you know thought that experience worked. And I guess what I'm saying is I kind of see myself as a storyteller um, mm-hmm. as much as anything else. So I want to tell a good story, uh, and I'm hoping mm-hmm. along the way maybe maybe they can uh, motivate readers to think about some things, but you know, the first thing is to tell a good story. That's the same thing with me is, is I, whenever I begin thinking about a project and my rule in terms of writing is I generally will not write for several months. I'll just let a story go upstairs and cook in my brain for, you know, anywhere from three months to maybe over a year or more than that, because I'm just letting the story kind of simmer and I may write out an outline and I'll write out my character sketches and then I'll just start talking to them and sort of find out what they are, what what are they like and what am I missing from their characters. But I just give it time. I, I just can't dive right into it. And uh, it's the same way. It's like you're building a scaffold. I guess I'm building a framework as well because it's like I usually know my beginning and I usually kind of know my end. And then it's that in between. There's no straight line. There's no point A to point B. I always joke with people that it's point A to point A, B to point A, C. Maybe now we get to B, etc. Well, you know, we're on the same page on this one because actually this story of Rachel Sims was spread out probably over 30 years. Um, okay. Partly because I had other writing, uh, you know, projects that came up at a couple of textbooks. I had a couple other books. I wrote a newspaper column. So I carried this story uh, in my head for a long, long time. And I think to go back to what you talked about, you know, as far as bringing the characters to life, I think the more, and I try to tell my students this, and sometimes, well, many times they don't, they want to write it and turn it in the next day, you know. <laughs> and, and I tell them what you have to do is carry it around in your head for a while until that story becomes a reality and until those characters become real to you. And the only way that can happen is if you have the time, you get away from it. I do my some of my best writing, actually, and maybe you do too, when I'm away from the computer and when I'm away from you know anything. I'm just wandering through life and carrying the thing around in my head, and that's when it kind of starts coming to me. So time is so important. Yeah. Well, there's that, yeah. And um, usually, and I, a friend of mine once told me this, and, and I kind of sympathize with her, it's like, the moment that you're exhausted and you're trying to go to sleep, you get the idea. And for her, it's she immediately has to jump out of bed and write it down or she's going to forget. And I get that because I've done that. But I've also kind of over the years developed my own idea that, like, if I don't write it down, like if I'm driving or if I'm working or doing something where I don't have the time to do it, I've gotten the idea that if it comes back to me later, then it was meant to be kept and it's a good one. If it's Absolutely. something I just thought of and it doesn't come back, then that's okay. It's, there's a famous story gonna... <laughs> about there's a famous yeah. story about Robert Frost, uh, who was still the most successful poet in American literature. But uh, and I'm not sure I got all the details right here. But he uh, talked about how he had worked for days and slaved over this poem, 
and he thought he finally had it, and he was exhausted, and he went to bed, and before he fell asleep, all of a sudden, he uh, had this uh, kind of a sense of another poem that came to him very quickly. He got out of bed, and he wrote it down. The first poem was completely lost. He didn't even finish it. The second poem, I believe, not 100% sure, but I think it was Stopping by Woods in a Snowy Evening. Uh, it, was a, it was one of the more famous poems, I know that. And he said, the, the, the lesson there, he said, behind uh, every bad poem or bad work of art or literature, there may be a good one trying to get out. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I guess it's, uh, that's one of those things, because it's like you have... Every every so often you write something that you initially think is really good, and then all of a sudden you look back at it and you're like, "What is that?" It's kind of like oh, a man. Anchor and Well, my my first <laughs> attempt at fiction was kind of an you know every English professor probably writes a novel about an English department, and it was pretty awful to be honest with you. I mean, it, it wasn't even that good. And I learned uh, later that actually publishers one of the one of the, the number one thing they get. As far as stories, our stories about English departments, and of course, every English professor wants to write a novel. I guess is what it comes down to. So, that was the one that mm-hmm. deserved to be buried in the backyard. Um, yep. I had one of those. I had a well. It's funny because I had a screen. I had a screenwriting class that I took. I'm from Vermont originally, and I went to school in Maine. But I took a couple of summer courses one year at the University of Vermont, which was like right down the road from me. And my father went there, and my sister went there, and. Um, um, I had a, a, I had a guy named Barry Sherman as my professor who worked in television, worked in screenwriting. He did an awful lot of different things. And uh, I was trying to think of what do I do for a, for a screenplay. And one of the one of my classmates said you ought to do something about radio because that's what you do right now. You know, you know, you're DJing and stuff. And I thought, no, I could. And I wrote a screenplay. And, um, Professor Sherman had quite a few things to say about the initial mock-up of it, and in the end, it turned out to be a senior project for when I went back to my to school in Maine. And I guess I did pretty well with it, but I, I look back at that now and I think, oh my God, how incredibly melodramatic and juvenile that was. Of course, I was only 20 when I read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things <laughs> that you were uh, describing that I was that came to mind here is. A lot of people have the wrong impression of what a screenwriting course is. They think it's all about calling, mm-hmm. calling angles and technical shots and all that kind of thing. It's not. It's screen. It's storytelling. That's what it. In fact, there's a yes. book I with the author of screenwriting is storytelling, and that's kind of how it is uh, taught at the university level now. And uh, you know, to, to look at the different ways of telling a good story, and that's why mm-hmm. I think it's such a wonderful uh, foundation for. Uh, you know, for novels. Mm-hmm. Um, our guest is Dennis Clawson, who is the author of the book The Sins of Rachel Sims on Brown Posey Press. And Dennis, um, I want to get into a couple of the other works and then we'll lead into sort of the larger question. Um, a couple of your other works, uh, Prairie Sun, Goodbye to Main Street, uh, works that are in, indicative of that small town life which you lived um, let's again go back to Minnesota, where you grew up, and um, from from the initial reading of it, it sounds like a version. Of, it sounds like an episode of Prairie Home Companion, if I may be so bold to say it. Uh, you mean the, the two books, as such, or my? Well, those well, books. I, I can tell you a little bit more about them, but my um, essentially, I grew up in a small town in Minnesota. Yeah. It's about five thousand people, which was mm-hmm. actually the biggest town in that area. 
and uh, we had okay. towns of 200 and 150 and all this kind of thing all around us. Uh, but it was very isolated at that time. There was uh, no Internet, though obviously it hadn't been invented yet. There was really no TV, uh, very little radio. Uh, and I tell my students at USD, I grew up in a place where there's no Internet, no TV, and no radio. Of course, I get this kind of puzzle, quizzical look in their faces. And what they, uh, I think they're thinking is Professor Clausen must be older than Moses because they can't envision a world where this is possible. What we did mm-hmm. have, we had a Carnegie Library. I practically lived in there in the winter because reading was something that just got you through the winters. You know, you couldn't, I don't think I've survived emotionally and psychologically without that. Uh, I became a gym rat without a, without a gym. I'll give you just a little background on my, my story here again. Get, and sure. essentially, I, I almost became a college basketball coach is what it came down to. I like literature more. Uh, we had a, a pool hall, and uh, if I can say uh, with some pride that I was once the best faculty pool player at the uh, University of San Diego. I don't think I am anymore, but that's a result <laughs> of my misspent youth. Um, and uh, I was a desk clerk at an old hotel that served as a retirement community. And the in the lobby, which was a few feet away from me, all the folks who had lived through the Great Depression uh, would sit. They weren't watching TV. They were sitting. They were telling stories about that, and I was, of course, listening to them very closely. And my point here is, although it was the disadvantages of not having radio, so much radio, television, it was the advantage of the oral storytelling tradition. I was immersed mm-hmm. in it, in all these places that I, you know, was in, and uh, that oral storytelling tradition was very important to me. Anyhow, Prairie Sun is uh, a, a book of uh, creative nonfiction, and it's essentially the story of my father, who was uh, adopted, uh, adopted to be more of a worker than a son. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. very long story in terms of how I put to put it all together, et cetera. But I came to realize uh, after the book was published uh, how often this had happened. Uh, to people. Uh, I went on a number of, uh, well, I, one big long book uh, signing and presentations, and at every one of the towns I visited, there's at least one or two people who had similar stories. Uh, in one of those towns, uh, Painesville, Minnesota, I walked into the room, there were like 300 people there, and I thought, wow, am I in the wrong room? You know, but it turns out mm-hmm. these are the descendants uh, of the orphan trains. I don't, I don't know if you know what the orphan trains were, but I do indeed. Body. Oh, you do? Okay. I think, I don't know if I have my dates right here, but from about 1859 until I think it was 1929, uh, some 350,000 orphans were sent out from New Jersey New York. It was either 350,000 or 250,000. It was a large number of them. And the idea was to give them a better life, and they thought for sure they'd give them a better life, uh, you know, in the Midwest, on the farms, et cetera. Well, of course, you know, human greed is what it is, and some of them were turned into, my, my father was not on the orphan train, let me qualify that. So I actually, at that particular stop, uh, I talked to the people afterwards, and I asked them how uh, you know their their ancestors were treated, and they kind of whispered to me, like, family secret, not very well. Well, I learned quite a bit there, of course, and then I, the very last stop, I'll never forget this as long as I live, I was giving uh, the presentation, and afterwards everybody left except for one elderly couple, and um he had suspenders, which you don't see in California. I've never seen anybody in 
California suspenders except him, I think. And his wife mm-hmm. had him by the arm, and she was pulling him down the aisle towards where I was standing. When she got to where I was standing, she said, uh, my husband read your book, and he wants to tell you something about it. Well, he started to say something, mm-hmm. and then he started to cry, and he turned and walked left. Mm-hmm. And then she said, what he wanted to tell you is he had a life very similar uh, to your father's, and as you can tell, it still is very painful for him to talk about. And so anyhow, that got me involved in that one. And uh, then the other one is kind of a, a family memoir, a more sprawling, a less structured kind of story. And uh, But it tries to you know, answer some of the questions people had about the characters in the uh, in Prairie's Son, and that became a pretty big project. I probably off and on put about 18, 19 years into that one, too. So mm-hmm. I'm all over the place as far as these. A, a person, you know, a writer should probably stick in a genre and, like Sue Grafton did, but I kind of have to feel my a pull from the story, and once I feel it, I go there. So, you know, I've kind of tried to write almost in every genre, some probably more successful than others. I've I've done the same thing, and it was partly to test myself to see if I could do it. And uh, some of the unpublished work I have bounces around into different things, and I, I just usually sit in one genre, but then, as I say, I like to break away from it. And when you have people of different ages reading a book that might be just something that would target a young adult audience by the face of it, and then you find people much older than that, people your age, people old enough to be your father, saying that, yeah, this was actually, this was really quite good. And you're like, oh, well, okay, that's a nice feeling. And um, actually, I must get back to this. Now, you're talking about, because you're talking about reading and getting you through the winters and that sort of thing. And uh, I grew up on a farm in Vermont, so there was always something to do. But there was a lot of times where uh, there were long nights and there were long periods where reading for me uh, especially being the youngest in my family and being much younger, reading was a wonderful thing that, that could take you places and get you through some of that. Um, in your local library, what, what drew you? What, uh, what were, the, what were the, the types of books you turned to? What kind of authors did, were the ones that got you? Well, I guess the, the short answer is, you know, whatever they had, it was a small Carnegie library. But I had exactly mm-hmm. the same experience you did, and that is, in those long winters, you know, when the snowbanks are kind of moving up the walls of the north side of the house and, you know, look like they're going to cover the windows in, and you don't have, you don't have television, you have a little radio, you have nothing there. Uh, a trip to the library to pick up, we could take three books out at a time, was huge. It was just huge. And uh, we had a, a librarian, uh, Margaret Grove, I'll never forget her. She was just a she was a character. She would countenance no interruptions in her library. I don't care if it was the mayor of the town. If they were making too much noise, she'd throw them out. And uh, she, 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 she took to me because she could tell how much I loved to read. And so she would kind of walk me around the library and point out different things I might enjoy reading. And uh, a lot of it was history. Uh, mm-hmm. so a lot of mysteries. I always enjoyed the mysteries. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, mm-hmm. Agatha Christie, all this. Uh, some of them were just uh, stories about dogs, animals, whatever. I just wanted to find something that when I walked back home with my books, trudging through snow drifts sometimes, that I could lose myself in that world and, and, and could kind of just forget about the long 
winter nights and all those other things that you obviously have experienced as well. So uh, Margaret Grove, uh, God bless her soul, she also had the best apple tree in town, incidentally. We used to go down the hill to her home and then go up to her yard and reach up and grab an apple and then come out the other side with it. And as it turns out, she knew we were doing it. She kind of enjoyed watching us, but she was a character. <laughs> well, that's that's something else, and it's like um, uh, you were did somewhere along the line. You must have had your own inspiration from listening to your to the neighbors telling these stories to reading these stories as well. Um, what was there any anything that specifically prompted you to say, "I wish to do this. I want to make my own stories." Well. I always did well um, in anything to do with writing. That kind of came fairly naturally to me. And um, mm-hmm. one of my teachers uh, in the fifth grade actually recognized that I, I struggled. She thought I was struggling with writing, it's, but she, she realized that I couldn't quite keep up. My hand couldn't keep quite up with what my mind was saying, and so she encouraged me to mm-hmm. do a typing course. And I took a typing course, and uh, I was typing everything by the time I left high school, which was kind of unusual. Uh, and, yes. Yeah, and I still have my old manual typewriter, incidentally. I, I love that old manual typewriter. Paid 39 bucks mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, along the way, there's just there's people who do things that you don't really think too much about at the time, and they change your whole life. And the fact that she recognized that I needed to uh, type and not write longhand changed my thinking in terms of what I wanted to do. That certainly did it. Margaret Grove, by walking me around the library and showing me books I should read, that changed my life. Uh, that local historian uh, in Dawson who told me about my grandmother, uh, that changed my life. I guess they're just, you know, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it kind of brought to mind all these people you know, and, and many others too, incidentally. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of just had that little interaction with you, and yet they kind of sent you off in a direction you probably wouldn't have taken. I find that kind of kind of fascinating, really. And in terms of your education, what led you to move into teaching and to uh, to the university? Well, that was something when I was young. If somebody told, had told me I was going to be a college professor, I would have said, uh, "No way, it's not going to happen." And I got involved in high school. I was kind of, I was very, I did well in English classes. I didn't do so well in the others. I kind of, the things that interested me, I could do well. And other things I kind of just Mm -hmm. blew off. And, um, but I came out of uh, high school and then into college. And it was just a different uh, kind of world for me. I I started to really enjoy learning and uh, uh, became kind of a voracious reader in a whole variety of different things. And kind of little by little, I just kind of kept moving in that direction. I had a mentor uh, in college who was actually a little all-American basketball player who also loved literature and taught American literature courses. And uh, so I was, he was my coach uh, in college, and I admired him so much because he was such a Renaissance man. I think kind of I saw that what he was doing was so fulfilling for him and it was really different than what I thought it was going to be. And I thought, maybe I can do this, although I was a little bit hesitant because at one point I did not like to stand up in front of a class or for anything. I was really self-conscious mm-hmm. and shy about that. But I thought, maybe I can do this. And 
So I just kept going and got a master's degree uh, from the University of Minnesota, a PhD from the University of California. And uh, I remember the first class I taught, I was oh, I was going to be so prepared that nothing could go wrong. And of course, <laughs> everything <laughs> went wrong. I was I was done in 15 minutes, and I thought, oh God, you know, how could they possibly want to listen to me? And uh, you know, you learn you learn from your mistakes. And one of the things I learned, it's a whole lot more difficult to to teach a good class than it, it appears to be when you're a student. Do you think it looks easy? Well, it it, it takes some doing. And uh, along the way, I guess I, I kind of overcame some things in myself that 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 sense of self-consciousness and that sense of uh, I'm not really wanting to be the sense of the center of attention. I didn't really want to do that, um, mm-hmm. and kind of by a fluke became a college professor, and I've been doing it now for uh, well about 40 years, I guess. You know, so yeah, mm-hmm. it's just another one of those things in life that you know you wonder if looking back. Well, that was a good one. It was a good choice for me. It was, it was a good choice, actually. Now you I don't think I, I don't think I would have made a good college basketball coach. Incidentally, I think I would have been too mercurial. I think it would have been up and down and all over the place. Mm-hmm. I believe that. Um, in terms of teaching, now you were talking about um, that you teach. Uh, you use the Scarlet Letter as uh, one of the books that you uh, teach with, and you also teach screenwriting. Um, what classes of students do you teach at the university? Do you freshmen, sophomores? Do you do all four classes? Well, at the University of San Diego, where I teach, uh, all the full professors uh, teach both the freshman and sophomore level basic writing courses and things like that. Um, the uh, American literature course I teach is actually it's actually it's American literature to 1940. Uh, so you mm-hmm. know I'm kind of lost in the past, and uh, you know with Hawthorne, Melville, Poe, Twain. Uh, well, uh, you know, Cather, those kind, of, those kind of people. Uh, so yes. that's an upper division course, and the screenwriting course is also an upper division course. We don't have a graduate program in the, in our English department, so um, those are taught at that level. But I find some really interesting things with the screenwriting class, and that is. Uh, the students in that course have probably seen more. I'm not probably to it. They've seen more films than I have. Uh, they mm-hmm. are a film generation, and uh, yeah. you know when they're taking literature courses, they kind of want to see in a in a novel some of the things they see in in films, and uh, and I find that they're looking for storyline. They really want to see a strong storyline. That's not to eliminate mm-hmm. voice. Voice is important, obviously. We publishers are looking for it and everything else. But I think this generation uh, is more, is equally hooked at least, on stories that are really well plotted, because that's what they've seen. Mm-hmm. In good films, that's what they've seen. You know, they've seen a lot of bad ones too. I'm sure. I have wondered about what the the type of student is like today, because um, my college years ended uh, 30 years ago, so I. I was in the early to mid to late 80s, right in the midst of that decade, and I have wondered what the students are today are like, and you've just answered part of my question, that not much has changed in that area. They still want a good story, and uh, you must get some really interesting, uh, you get a lot of really interesting questions, and like you were saying, these are kids that grew up with the internet. They grew up with cable television, which did not come to my hometown until long after I left it. So it was kind of, 
it, it, there's a culture shock, but there seems to be some threads that really do connect. Well, I think there are. I, I do have a lot of empathy for this uh, generation because I think that uh, they see some of the things going on in the world and the country, and I, I think uh, it's my understanding that uh, you know depression type problems are very high with this this generation, and mm-hmm. uh, I think it's uh, you know they want I think a lot of them to take literature courses, uh, but they don't see the the job prospects at the end of all of those things. So, you know, I have a lot of empathy for them. I, in some ways, I almost feel uh, sympathy for them because they have the Internet and because they have the iPhones. Uh, we had none of those things, of course, as I mentioned earlier, and, and I think mm-hmm. they kind of miss out on something that way. You know, I was uh, driving out of campus the other day, and I saw this young couple uh, walking hand in hand, and uh, obviously they were boyfriend girlfriend. And I saw in his other hand he had an iPhone, and he was looking at it, and she was looking at her iPhone. And I thought, what's the connection there? You know, they're kind of walking together, but they're not really together. So I, I don't know. I think there's there's obviously some good things about the modern technology, but I think there are some things too that I don't know that probably created, in my opinion, my you know old-fashioned opinion probably creates a little bit too much uh, of a uh, they're too much with the world in some ways and not enough perhaps little, with... yeah it's it's interesting I, I saw this yesterday similar thing I saw two people who were friends uh, two women sitting some I think they were at a Starbucks or something like that I think it was going to get coffee and they're both sitting next to each other on their iPhones and they're look and they're comparing what they're seeing on their phones, like they're watching the same TV. They're watching two different TV shows, and I was kind of like, "Okay, well, at least they're talking to each other." <laughs> I but, have a, I, <laughs> I don't have an iPhone. I have an old one of those old flip top phones, you know, which nobody yep. has anymore. And uh, the only number I think that I have is my wife's. Uh, well, my, my wife knows the, the phone number; nobody else does. And I, I showed that uh, to my students. And I'm pretty sure at that point they thought, yeah, Professor Clausen must be older than Moses because nobody carries that one around. (laughs) Well, I I resisted. I had a flip phone up until only about two or three years ago, and I finally had to break down and get one for my work. So it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to do it. And it's just, yeah, it's one of those things where it's without being – like autocratic about it we've got to find a way and sometimes I, for me it's kind of like okay i'm putting when i'm when i'm talking with someone i got called out about it once a few years ago so i've always i just try to be out of politeness just make a point of putting my phone away or, or shutting it off or putting it down it's like okay you have my attention yep. and i hope that's an example i hope well I, I understand you know that some people have to have them and i know that uh, for me, I kind of like being unreachable uh, for the reason that we talked about earlier. A lot of times when I'm wandering through the world, I love to be doing mm-hmm. my writing. I, I'm writing in my head, you know, and I just yep. kind of want to be interrupted. So it's the fact that my phone is off more than it's on, and uh, my wife complains about that when she's trying to get a hold of me. But uh, I just kind of enjoy – I enjoy solitude, you know, and I'm not sure well, that young yeah. – Young people today have that. There's a chapter in Walden, uh, Henry David Thoreau's Walden, about the importance of solitude and uh, its importance in in terms of 
you know, enriching our whole sense of life and everything. And and I and I think yes. it is important. And I think there's very little solitude in the world today, kind of taken away from. No, it's, it's it's definitely not just young folks either. I mean, I mean, our age thereabouts. I see the same kind of hooking in, and it's very interesting. People talk about being glued, you know, kids being glued to their smartphone, and I thought, you know what, this is no different than us being glued to our TV sets. Yeah, yeah. Only at least yeah. we could eventually shut those off and, and or walk away from them because eventually we had to do it. Um, I yeah, there is this, you know, the the the, the solitude thing is interesting, and uh, lately it's just like I, I explained this to my boss. I said that. There's only three or four people on my phone that have specific ringtones, and mm-hmm. that's I finally figured out how to split the hairs. I just figure, okay, when this is on, which it usually has to be for my job, the specific ringtones are for certain people that I that need to talk to me and I need to talk to them, and everybody else, if I can pick it up, I will. If not, it's going to voicemail. Sorry. But yep. yeah. I do the same thing. I mean, uh, I've been very much alone in a lot of my life and that was part of my upbringing and it was sort of like I think part of that was to sort of be the breeding ground for my own writing and I do the exact same thing so I'm just kind of like I'm working on it in my head I know you can't see it you can't hear it but I'm doing it (laughs) so I thought I I thought I thought back to that kind of thing many times when I was reminiscing about my uh you know my adventures in my small town pool hall and listening to the mm-hmm. we, we didn't have a retirement community there in terms of you know any place where they could go so they would gather in in that pool hall, a lot of them and uh, mm-hmm. i thought what if they were alive today well you know they'd probably be watching tv maybe they'd be looking at their iphones i don't know but they told their stories and they created a sense of community through their stories and uh, mm-hmm. it was just fascinating to watch and to listen to there was a couple of them who would uh, been up in the uh, Canadian gold rush, I guess, and they they would uh, have a little fun with Robert Service's poem, uh, The Cremation of Sam McGee. They'd kind of throw, you know, these lyrics back and forth at each other. I thought it was wonderful. And uh, I had the same experience, of course, when I was in that that old hotel because a lot of the retirees actually had rooms there, especially if they were widowed. And then they were down in the lobby and they didn't watch TV, you know, they, they created a sense of, of community. So I don't want to idealize the past, but there's something, I think that something that's been lost there, I think. Well, there's the lost art of it, uh, the lost art of the story. Well, there, there are some that are still keeping it alive. And I guess the main, the main touchstones I have come from not Vermont specifically, but from Maine, because I went to college there my family vacationed there for years and years. I have family living there now, and I worked up there for a number of years. And I was very fortunate to have an historian and a, and a, and a main, a, a genuine Downey storyteller named John McDonald. As he was a sales executive at one of the radio stations I worked for, he hosted a talk show on another station. He did a bunch of different things. He, he did TV commercials, and he was one of these folks who would. Um, tell stories he would just he would do stage shows like it would be like stand-up comedy only without the insults and he and another gentleman that i became friends with tim sample doing the same thing and they were taking from the stories of the late marshall dodge who was one of the 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 eminent downey storytellers and they would do the same things they would tell the same stories they'd make up their own and they'd throw in their own twists and very entertaining but also a reach back in time yeah, yeah. 
You don't see well, of course, love, and in, you may in, know somebody like that. In my field, uh, of course, one of my favorite authors is Mark Twain. I think he's everybody's favorite mm-hmm. author in some ways. I, I'm very fortunate mm-hmm. I get to go through uh, you know, the survey course, and a lot of these authors have become like old friends over the years. I enjoy him as much as anyone, but more than anyone else, he really was uh, an oral storyteller. And um, he actually took a lot of his stories, came from things he heard in the mining camps, on the steamboats, and this kind of thing. And he, and he turned them into literature, and he turned them into really high art, uh, made that transformation. So, you know, a lot of what we consider, I think, novels and literature today uh, really start from some basic storytelling that writers heard and kind of decided to run with. And uh, mm-hmm. anyhow, you know, that's... Hopefully that world is still with us in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, some of us are still keeping it alive in our own way, I think. Um, in the time that we have left on us, I need to ask you about some of the other projects you're doing for Sunbury Press. And uh, what's your what upcoming works are, are uh, the readers going to get into their hands soon, hopefully? Oh, sure. Well, uh, I'm actually working on uh, a book called uh, the, uh, the Accountant's Apprentice, and I'm actually stretching my win- wings a little bit because everything that I've written up to this point is really uh, set in rural America or small towns. But uh, this one is set in an urban area. Uh, it's uh, set in San Diego and uh, about some very mysterious and kind of difficult to explain events that uh, happen in our, uh, town, our city, actually. And uh, one of the things I guess I've discovered uh, in the writing of it, uh, you know, you can make a distinction between small towns and big cities, but I'm finding that big cities actually are a conglomerate of small towns. Depending upon where you are, you still kind of get a lot of these small town type characters in that area, et cetera. But uh, so I'm doing that. That's going to be coming out uh, in uh, October, and uh, mm-hmm. we'll be uh, I'll be giving a presentation at the university on that one. It's uh, another. Uh, I'm trying to be a little vague here. It's kind of I start again with uh, a genre of sorts, and then hopefully kind of transcend it in some ways. So I'm doing that, and then uh, we're going to also bring out uh, a, uh, a a novella really called My Christmas Attic, and it's uh, based on a, a boy. It's kind of set in during the era of the Korean War. And a, a boy, a young boy, who is struggling with uh, dyslexia at the time, and the loss of his father, uh, missing in action at least in in the Korean War, and uh, how he's kind of bullied a little bit at school and uh, kind of struggles with that, and kind of becomes more and more isolated from his um, from his classmates, and uh, he uh, it was at a time when dyslexia was not really um, diagnosed very effectively or how to treat right. it was you know etc we've had some of that in in my family my my sister was uh, full blown dyslexic i may have had a mm-hmm. minor a mild case of it i know there's a couple of switching things i still do my son uh, actually uh, was uh, diagnosed with a processing problem the name of which i forget it's a form of dyslexia because dyslexia has many forms and uh, so I wrote it, kind of wrote it for him first to um, kind of bolster his spirits a little bit and uh, it's turned into a Christmas story. And uh, so Sunbury's going to do it. Then I'm very happy All about right. it. Yeah, one last question I have then. Uh, what advice do you give to an aspiring writer 
of any age. Well, some of what we have already talked about, I think, and that is learn to become a good storyteller. Because I think what you want to do more than anything else is you want to have an underlying story that kind of entertains and pulls people in and makes them want to be in that world for a while. Uh, I think that's certainly one of the things I would tell them. I'd also tell them that for writers, uh, the first 20 years of our lives are frequently the ones that are most in, uh, informative in the, the kind of writing we will do later. That's so you know true. Of, I mean, Twain wrote you know Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer about his early experiences. Salinger wrote about young people that those based on his own experiences. Willa Cather when she left Virginia and came to Red Cloud, Nebraska, eight nine years old. That became the the, the foundation for her Prairie trilogy. I think the major writers um, have all kind of tapped into the fact that our the first two decades of our life, things really affect us at a deeper level, and we can bring them out later yes. um, and mm-hmm. turn them into literature and art that's probably going to be more you know higher art, higher literature, et cetera. I would certainly say that. Uh, I would also you know say uh, think of the places you're writing about. Uh, Eudora Welty used to say, all literature begins with a sense of place. And you think about mm-hmm. those same list of writers, and we identify every one of them with a place. And I think that uh, the places you've been, the characters you've met uh, when you are in the first two decades of your life are probably the ones you're going to write best about. And I tell my students, you probably already have it inside of you, because most of them are close to 20. It's just that you haven't learned mm-hmm. how to turn it into literature yet. Well, Dennis, thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. Oh, this has been terrific. Thank you, too. I I had a great time. Thank you so much. My guest has been Dennis Clausen, author of The Sins of Rachel Sims on Brown Posey Press. I'm Tori Gates, your host. Check out my Brown Posey works, A Moment in the Sun, and Live from the Cafe. This is the Book Speak Network. (laughs) 